Found us again, the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast. I'm your host, Don Demuccio, and we have a hell of a show today. But first, I want to mention that our official merchandise shop is now open for business, filled with wondrous items made for pennies in Sri Lanka and resold to you, our loyal customers, at top dollar. T-shirts, mugs, bumper stickers, and oh, so much more are available. Just visit our website at www.itsonlyrockandrollpodcast.com. And remember, Christmas is just around the corner in six months or so. Now, we got a big show on tap for you because today's spotlight artist is the great Bev Bevan. This is a guy that John Bonham used to look up to for inspiration. And I even read once that Bev was on the short list of drummers Led Zeppelin were considering if indeed they decided to go forward, which as we all know, they didn't. Uh, his credits include a stint with Black Sabbath during their Born Again tour. Uh, that was when Ian Gillen was fronting the band. But more importantly, Bev Bevan helped form two of Rock's biggest acts. First, as the drummer of the highly influential and critically acclaimed 60s UK band The Move. And then, along with members Roy Wood and Jeff Lynne, morphed that band into one of the most successful rock acts of all time, Electric Light Orchestra.
Today's guest has been the drummer for some of the most successful British bands in rock history, including The Move, who in the 1960s scored 10 top 40 hits in the UK, a short stint with Black Sabbath in the 80s, and most famously as a founding member of ELO, Electric Light Orchestra, who dominated radio with massive singles like Evil Woman, Telephone Line, Strange Magic, and 1979's Top 5 Smash Don't Bring Me Down. And today he tours and records with the unique country folk rock band Quill, and will be debuting tracks from their forthcoming album later on in the show. Please welcome to the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast, Bev Bevan. Good afternoon, sir. Good afternoon to you, Don. Thank you for joining us. Really appreciate it, man. Yeah, oh, it's my pleasure. Um, whereabouts in California are you? Um, not in California, the other coast. I am in Rhode Island, ah. New England area of the United States. Ah, bad, bad information on my <laughs> Okay, Rhode That's great. No, no I, uh, I love that area. Did a lot of touring in the 70s. Providence Civic Center, I would imagine. Yeah, indeed. Boston Absolutely. Gardens. Sure, sure. How's things going in the UK? I know you're having some false starts with the reopening and all that. Must be tough on touring, obviously. It is very tough on touring. Um, last time we worked, uh, last time we worked with Quill was March 2020. Um, and the same for everybody else. And unfortunately, we've had another further month's lockdown. Yeah. So... But fingers crossed, we're we're back on the road in September with Quill. Fantastic. Now, you were raised in an area of Birmingham, England called Yardley, I believe? Actually, Denny Lane was raised in Yardley. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, I was raised not far away, three or four miles away, in a place called Spark Hill. Okay. And went to a local school, Mosley Grammar School, where that's when I first heard American rock and roll <laughs> and, and immediately fell head over heels in love with it the music was so bland back then in england and probably in america too uh and then suddenly i heard elvis heartbreak hotel oh, yeah. uh, and everything followed on you know little richard and uh Jerry lewis and the everly brothers and just so many great american rock and roll records and i was totally turned on and that's from that moment really that's all i wanted to do but what specifically about Birmingham? I mean, what the hell were they putting in the drinking water back then that produced so many great bands? You got Black Sabbath, Moody Blues, Judas Priest, Spencer Davis, The Move. The list is massive. Do you put it down to anything specific about the culture or the environment? Um, t Tony Iommi is, is probably my best friend in, in the music business to this day. Uh, and the Black Sabbath sound, which, you know, Tony is credited with inventing heavy metal music, which is pretty special sure. uh, and particularly where he lived which is Aston home of Aston Villa football club uh, it, it's a very very grungy industrial factory noisy sort of area mm -hmm. uh, and it, I, I can understand that, that Sabbath music would come from an environment like that but as for people like The Move uh, and ELO and the, the Moody Blues uh, and UB40 and Duran Duran, uh, Spencer Davis Group, Steve Winwood. Uh, they're all different sorts of music, really. Uh, but it had, Birmingham had the most amazing amount of venues you could play. I remember back when I my first professional band, Denny Lane and the Diplomats, before Denny formed the Moody Blues. But, you know, there were so many venues. We were so fortunate. We could play every pub. There were hundreds of pubs. They all had live music. Mm -hmm. There were clubs, there were theatres, there were um, youth clubs, skating rinks, parks. It just so, so much. It was, it was so great to be a musician in those days. 
So you guys were not only playing, but obviously seeing other bands and getting inspired. Yeah, I mean, that's, I think, what led to the Moody Blues. And we did well, Danny Lane and the Diplomats. Uh, we were one of the very top bands in, in, the, in the West Midlands. We opened for the Rolling Stones. We opened for the Beatles. Uh, but uh, we were very much a pop group. Uh, one night, we all went to see the Spencer Davis group, featuring Steve Winwood, of course, yeah. at Birmingham University. And it, um, it just turned Denny's head totally. He said, oh, no more of this pop crap. <laughs> I want to, I want to sing the blues, man. Sure. And, and he, and he just upped and left, which you like that. Well, I want to back up just a little bit because, like you talked about, hearing Elvis as a kid and how yeah. rock and roll inspired you. But what came first, hearing rock and roll or playing the drums? Oh no, hearing hearing rock and roll. And I got some mates in my class at school who also loved American rock and roll. You know, one was the lead singer, one was already playing guitars, another guy was playing bass. Uh, so there's only really the drums left. So that was it. I said, okay. <laughs> Out of necessity, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it was, it was kind of, it's a nice story. I, my father died when I was 10 years old. Mm. So I, I never got to know him that well. And this was not, not long. This was three or four years later. And I said to my mum, my widowed mum, Mum, I'm gonna. I, I want to be a drummer. I, you know, I, I, I need. I need a drum kit, basically. Mm. Uh, and there was one. Uh, I spotted one in in, in town centre, and uh, it's like thirty five pounds, which was a small fortune back then. Do you remember what and, it was? The brand? Yeah, it was a, a Broadway Gold Sparkle oh. drum kit. Um, it was not one of the big makes, but it right. was still a lot of money. Sure. Um, and, and my mum immediately agreed that I could have this drum kit, and I was pretty flabbergasted. And it was only about, it was about a year later, and I, and I somehow could just play. I never had a lesson or anything. I just self-taught. And it's, it was about a year later when my mum could hear me playing pretty well uh, that she told me that my dad was a drummer. Uh, and I, I didn't even know that. Wow. that he, used to, he used to have a, a little sort of dance trio in the wartime years, really. Yeah. And his name was Charles Thomas Bevan. But he was nicknamed Bev. So it was the Bev Bevan Dance Trio. And that's how I got my name. Uh, but when I, when I came to be christened, um, there was actually no such a name as Bev. So I ended up being called Beverly. And being called Beverly in that area of Birmingham, it was akin to being a boy named Sue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. So, uh, but, luckily, I was I was a big guy, so I could take care of myself. There you go. All right. But Bev Bevan's <laughs> such a cool rock and roll name, so it definitely worked out for the best. It did. In, just, it did indeed. Yes. Yeah. For people who may not know, you do a great YouTube show with your Quill comrade and partner Joy. And I was yeah. watching it, so I cheated. I already know the answer to this question, but it's a great story. Tell me the first rock and roll show that you ever attended. Yeah, it was. Um, my school band was called uh, Rocking Ronnie and the Renegades. Nice. We had some great names. Rocking Ronnie and Rocking Ronnie, the lead singer, his absolute favorite uh, rock and roll singer was Gene Vincent. Well, Bebop Lula, she's my baby. Bebop Lula, I don't mean my baby. Bebop Lula, she's my baby. Bebop Lula, I don't while we were still at school, we sneaked off school one day to get two or three buses to go to West Bromwich, uh, which is a 
quite a few miles away from where we lived, uh, to see Gene Vincent play at the Adelphi Ballroom. And we got there at about, oh, we were there by about three or four o'clock. We were there before the band arrived. <laughs> so uh, and it was Gene Vincent and his British backing group, was, uh, actually a terrific band called Sounds Incorporated. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that great drummer actually called Tony Newman. Uh, so we met Gene Vincent and he was charming. And we were right in the front row, all standing to watch his show. Uh, and it just blew us away and made me even more determined that what I wanted to do for the rest of my life was be in a, in a rock and roll band. And luckily, uh, I've been able to do that, very luckily. Sounds Incorporated, they were the ones with the five sax players, something yeah, like that? Yeah, they were a great band, actually. Something I've never really done is, is played in a band with a, a brass section, but they were one of the very best for that. They're the ones who do the horns on Beatles' Good Morning, Good Morning. Yes, that's um, true. Yep, it's yeah. Just neither here nor there. No, you see. You did mention Denny and the Diplomats, who run by mm -hmm. the great Denny Lane, who I've actually had the pleasure to work for for a brief time. He's a great guy. Tell me how that actually came to be. How did you guys meet? We, um, although I, I, you know, I wanted to just play drums, but I, I hadn't got any money. So I, for one year, I did get a job at a departmental store in Birmingham called the Beehive, and Denny Lane was working at a, a store called Rackham's, which is like sort of the posh store in Birmingham. And we both had to take these certificates, uh, retail sort of certificates. Uh, and so we, we both attended the same college, only for one night a week. Mm. And we got to know each other. And, and Denny came to see my little band play, and he really liked the way I played. And he said, you know, let's, why don't we form a new, you know, let's be brave and he, he got so much confidence in himself, most confident guy I'd ever met, really. He said, yeah, cause, you know, we can make it in the music business. Let's form a band and, and ditch our jobs and, and go for it. And that's basically what we did. What did you recognize in him? Like you said, he had a lot of drive. He had a lot of ambition. But vocally, guitar player, how did he rate amongst some of the other guys you worked with? At the time, he was certainly the best I'd, I'd worked with. I loved his voice, actually, his unique voice. And a good guitar player. He used to do like acrobatics on stage as well. I don't think he does that anymore. He'd do, you know, somersaults and backflips and things. So he was a showman? He was a real showman. And he did have this great confidence in it, tended to rub off on me as well. And the other two guys in the band didn't have that sort of drive and they, they you know, they quit the business. But me and Denny, we I still keep in touch with Denny to this day, which is lovely. I know you didn't get the big recording contract with the Diplomats, but you did record. There's a song called Forever in a Day. Yeah, which actually made it onto a Moody Blues box set. So yeah. it did finally see the light of day. for Tony Hatch as a producer, who was also a great songwriter. And he was recording, sort of demoing and recording two bands at the same time. And Pi Records, who he worked for, said, well, these both these bands are okay, but you've only got room for one. You, you better choose which one you, you, you want to keep uh, and ditch the other one, really. 
And the other band turned out to be the Searchers. Oh, so yeah. it, it was a good decision by Tony's part, really, because uh, they were very, very successful, as you know. You mentioned how he saw Steve Winwood, but what led Denny to join the Moody Blues and leave you guys, and, and how did that affect you? Uh, it, well, it did affect us, and I remember the last show we ever did was opening for the Rolling Stones at Birmingham Town Hall. Yeah, and we thought we'd be able to replace Denny because we brought in two people to replace him from another band who, who was splitting up. But good as the singer was and good as the, the guitar player was, Denny had that that certain magic. And and within or within a year of Denny leaving, the diplomats split up completely. How long before you got the move going? Uh, quite a time. I mean, I, I had to go back to work for a, a few months to keep the payments up on my drums. And then one day, Carl Wayne came into the store I was working at and said, uh, our drummer's leaving and, you know, would you be interested in the job? Uh, which I was. And then, but he, he did take me by surprise. And he said, well, I got, I got the job. And then he said, we're going to start work in about 10 days' time. And I thought he'd be at some local pub or something. And he said, oh, no, we've got a month in Germany. So I, I didn't even have a passport. So I said, get one of those ASAP. Mm. And next thing I know, we did the famous German grind. It, it, it's like slave labor. We used to do uh, seven 45-minute spots a night. And then at weekends, we do 10. <laughs> 10 45-minute spots a day on Saturday and Sunday. No, no days off. But it, working like that teaches you a lot as well. It's funny because Russ Ballard said the same thing. Yeah, no, yeah, I, I know Russ too. A great guy. Because on that show, Adam Faith came up, and I mentioned that a lot of Americans aren't necessarily familiar with him. And it's kind of a similar case with The Move. Wildly famous in the UK and Europe, highly influential. I think to me, you guys were kind of the progenitor of what would become progressive and even punk rock to a degree. Yeah. Can you explain to American audience who may not be familiar with the band exactly what The Move was all about? Well... David Bowie was playing, um, as he was, it was David Jones at the time. Everyone knew he was going to be a big success. He played at a club called The Cedar in, in Birmingham. And two guys, local musicians, Trevor Burton and Ace Kefford, went to see the show and got talking to David afterwards. And just literally asked, he said, look, you know, we're really keen to, to make it big in the business. What is your advice? And David Jones, David Bowie, he said, what you do, he said, you just put together the best musos you can find in Birmingham, and there were thousands of them, and you rehearse and rehearse like crazy, and you get yourselves down to London and try and find yourself a, a manager. That's what you've got to do. And that's exactly what we did. Trevor and Ace asked Roy Wood if he'd be the lead guitarist, and then they asked me if I'd be the drummer, and they asked Carl Wayne if he'd be the singer. And we did as we were told. We rehearsed until the, we were, it was the tightest band with all like dance steps and four or five part harmonies. It's, it was a great, great band move. Try and check us out some of those early recordings.
called Tony Secunda, who had managed the Moody Blues, took over our management. He managed to get us a residency at the Marquee Club in London, which is legendary. And within about a month, we had people queuing around the block to see us. And every major record company in Britain was trying to sign us. It, it just worked out perfectly. And our first record, Night of Fear, got to number two. I can hear the grass grow. The second one was top five. Flowers in the Rain was top five. Fire Brigade was. So enormously successful band. But then it just started to break up. First of all, Ace Kefford left. And then Trevor Burton left. And it was never as good after that. And by the time we got to America in 69, uh, and we did some, some great shows, and you can, there's even a, a great live album live at the Fillmore, uh, we left it too late to get over to see you guys. Yeah, yeah. And I know you had done a supporting act for uh, Iggy and the Stooges, right? Yeah, we did, we did Iggy and the Stooges in Detroit yeah. uh, a couple of nights, and then we drove Route 66, which was a thrill in itself, because none of us had ever been to America before. And then we did five nights at the Whiskey in LA. And because we were on A&M Records, we got to meet Herb Albert and he brought his new young duo, the Carpenters, <laughs> to see us. And, and the Doors came to see us. And uh, Joni Mitchell uh, even went back to her house for a, a bit of a party. So it was magical. And then went up to San Francisco and did, I think it was four nights with Joe Cocker and Little Richard. Wow. So it was a great three weeks in America. But you mentioned Tony Secunda too, and he had a penchant for kind of orchestrating some wild publicity stunts, to say the least. Yeah, he, he, was, he was a great manager in, in, in many senses of the word, but he just, he did love publicity, and he, he had us doing all manner of balmy things. And he was, a, he was a big fan, really, of the Stones. So as soon as we started, we also had a photography, we had thousands and thousands of photos taken, by a guy called Bobby Davis and a great photographer. But we were told from the start, you know, you've got to look moody and, and menacing. No nice, nice Beatle-type smiles, none of that. Mm. You know, it looks like the Rolling Stones do because um, Tony really admired their manager. But And he had us doing all daft things, like we carried a, a replica H-bomb through the streets of Manchester just <laughs> so we could get arrested to be put in the papers the next day. And what about the signing of the, the contract and... Yeah, uh, that's a great photo. It's got uh, Roy signing, there's a beautiful page three model, and, and the contracts, well, supposedly, written on her back, and, 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 and Roy's signing the contracts yeah. while, while Tony Seconda and Carl Wayne look on. Right. Yeah. I know there's a crazy story about the master tapes for what would have been your first full-length album for the move. Is it unfair for me to speculate that perhaps your manager might have been behind that as well? Oh, totally. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, Roy was our only songwriter and a bloody good one, but he, he was he was he was hardly prolific. You know, he wasn't fast. And ideally, we should have had a dozen Roy Wood songs on the first album. You know, within after our at least our second hit single, but it was just dragging on and on, and Roy couldn't write quickly enough. So we started just putting cover versions on to make, make up the time on the album. But it was t it was still too slow. So. We'd already, I think, publicised the release date of the album, and we were nowhere near close to, to meeting it. So Tony Seconda made up this story that all the, the master tapes had been stolen from a car, and he offered a £50 reward for their return. And then he made up this guy's name, like a, a builder named Fred Smith, has found the tapes in a dustbin somewhere, and he's had his reward. 
and now we're back on track. But the album will be a little bit later being released than we really thought it would be. Well, that's one way to delay something, huh? Just tell lies, yeah. Tell lies, yeah, yeah. (laughs) One of your biggest hits with the move was uh, Flowers in the Rain. And at BBC Radio 1? Yeah, which they, was, they went on the they, air later? Yeah, when they banned, well, the government, because we were very popular on the pirate radio stations like oh. Radio London, yep. Radio Caroline. Uh, the government in 67 banned pirate radio, so that ceased to exist. And and they so they invented their basically their own pirate radio station, but it was a BBC one called Radio 1. And... We were the moves, Flowers in the Rain was the first ever record to be played on Radio One, which was great for us because it can only be one first. At the same time, Tony Secunda, not in his wisdom, um, sent out a publicity postcard which included a caricature of Harold Wilson, the then Prime Minister, doing things that he shouldn't be doing. And we were sued. I don't blame Harold Wilson for suing this, uh, and it, but it was very unfair because. All the royalties from Flowers in the Rain and the B-side, Here We Go Around the Lemon Tree, and very unjustly, all the songwriting royalties from Flowers in the Rain and the B-side, which again was written by Roy Wood, they were all taken too. All the monies went to, I must say, very good charities, but it, it was unfair and it was a stupid thing for Tony Secunda to do, and that it led to us breaking up with him shortly after that. I can't imagine why the courts would have punished the songwriters and not the management. Quite, yeah. Uh, I mean, the, the management would have, they would have got their share of, of the record as well. But, and of course, we did have massive publicity. I mean, the, literally the front pages of every national newspaper on, on the day the story broke and when we had to go to court as well. So we had massive publicity. But we were doing fine anyway. You know, we, uh, it was a dumb thing to do. And the, the stress, there's a lot of stress involved. This was the days of James Bond really breaking big. Mm. And we really, we believe that we were being, I don't think we probably were, being followed around the streets of London by SS guys and secret agents and God knows what. Well, it's no secret that the British government were out to get a lot of rock bands at the time, a lot of the musicians, busting the Stones, busting Beatles. So we were, we, you know, it scared the hell out of us. So we, you know, we put on a brave face, but we were scared. And I think in particular, Ace Kefford, who was quite a nervous character anyway, it, it put him over the top and, it, and he started doing more and more drugs and he and he, he left the band shortly after and he's never been right since. I, I bumped into him at a concert a couple of years ago and it, and it ruined his life, basically. You know, he, the stress of it all was just way too much for him to take. That's sad. That's, that's yeah. Any of those postcards survive today? I think they're illegal. I don't think they're not, wow. they're not supposed to exist anywhere. No, there's only about a hundred ever printed, but I think they've all gone. Such a difference between UK and US libel laws. Yeah, you know, over here you could get away with that, no problem. Yeah, well, hey, hey, we were over here. We, we were following your last presidential election with awe and disbelief at Mr. Trump's rantings and ravings. I try to keep politics out of this show, but I'm going to tell you, I'm still having nightmares over that four years. (laughs) There's not enough Zoloff in the world to get over that one. (laughs) Woke up one morning half asleep with all my blankets in a heap and yellow roses scattered all around. Time was still approaching, for I couldn't stand it anymore. So Mary goes upon my eye to die. I'm just 
the sight that I was seeking. I am just sitting, watching flowers in the rain, feel the power of the rain, making the garden grow. I am just sitting, watching flowers in the rain, feel the power of the rain. With the trees, we need to leave reality behind me. With my commitments in a mess, my sleep has gone away depressed. In a world of fantasy, you'll find me. I'm just sitting, watching flowers in the rain. about that transition when Jeff Lynne came in? Yeah, we, we um, I'll say we, we lost Ace Cafford and then we lost Trevor Burton. But we, we still a good band, the one that played at that one American tour. And then we, we came back to England and then the lead singer, Carl Wayne, is a great singer, Carl. Uh, he was looking how successful people like Tom Jones and Engelbert Humperdinck were. And I think he wanted to have a go at being a, a solo crooner. Mm-hmm. which he was very good at, but he never actually made it as a solo singer. Uh, at that point when he left, there's only me and Roy left from the original lineup. Uh, and Roy, for some time, had been a fan of Jeff Lynne's. Uh, and Jeff Lynne was singing and writing all the songs for a band called Idol Race. Uh, and we managed to persuade Jeff to join the move. And he agreed, but right from the start, he said, you know, I don't want to be in the move, but I'd like to work with Roy and, and with you. And, but we need to form a new band completely, write new songs, go on the road with this new band, don't do any move songs, you know, just create something brand new. Uh, um, but we had contractual obligations to do a couple of albums to finish the move contract, which we did. Right. Uh, and and uh, Jeff toured with us as the move, just did not, not a lot, but we did quite a few dates. Uh, and then we started putting a band together that was called Electric Light Orchestra. And what came to pass is, I don't know if it's unique, but at one stage, I think in 72, we were, at, we were in the top 10 with The Move, with a song called California Man, mm-hmm. our last ever, last ever single, and also in the charts with 105.38 Overture by ELO. And the, the record company sort of said, well, look, you've got to make a choice here. <laughs> what are you going to be? And, uh, and, we, and we said, oh, no, we're, we're going to be ELO. Sure. Yeah, the Move is no more. And ironically, that last single that did get some traction in the United States was the Jeff Lynne composition, Do You, by The Move. That's right. That's our only dent, the uh, USA charts. Yeah. You know, I'm torn because I know the ELO version so well. And I had just heard The Move version more recently. And it's got a, I don't know if the word balls is the right word to use, but it's got a a real punch to it that the other one doesn't. Yeah, yeah. Given the choice, I, I prefer The Move one. Yeah. Yep. I prefer them. I prefer the drumming on it, and I think I think it's the move on where at the end Jeff says, "Look out, baby, there's a plane a coming."
that first ELO single, it was pretty obvious that the band was kind of picking up where the Beatles left off. That sense of creativity and rich, complex harmonies. And yet it wasn't like overindulgent. It's all wrapped up in near perfect four minute singles. And you all over the radio in the United States, unlike with the move, you guys were glacial here. Well, well we set out. It was our intention from the start to really concentrate on the USA. Something that we, you know, we made a mistake, well, me and Roy did, uh, made a mistake with the move, not going to the States, um, mainly our management's fault. But even so, we, we were determined that to have a go at making it uh, in America. Roy didn't last long. I mean, that first album w- was a bit of a mishmash. One of five three eight overture is by far the best track on it, I think. Uh, but then Roy left to form a band called Wizard, uh, which did amazingly well in Britain and in Europe. Uh, a couple of number one hits, and so Jeff and I had to sort of re-recruit for ELO, and we brought in new people, and we started touring America. You had a cello player and a violin player, and I would imagine. Even though professional PA systems had come leaps and bounds as an industry in the early 70s, there had to be limitations to getting a good sound. Yeah, uh, well, with the original ELO, with Roy in the band, on stage it was a mess, really, because we got a, we'd even got a French horn player as well. It was not a slick show in the slightest. Uh, there's like a, there were five-minute breaks between each song before we, you get, know... Yeah, reset. get it together. Yeah, uh, but we changed that. We, we slimmed it down to a seven-piece and we discovered how to amplify the violin and the cellos. Uh, that made a massive difference. Someone invented a pickup that worked for, particularly worked for a cello. That was the turning point, really. Once you could actually hear the cellos in the mix, we had this Beatlesque sound, but it was live on stage. Like magic Oh 
most all through the move years, you know, you just didn't have monitors on stage. You know, monitors are a relatively new invention and they're crucial to, to any band nowadays. The monitor mix is the most important thing of all. I can't imagine that the Beatles played in front of 65,000 people at Shea Stadium with no monitors. That's extraordinary. I've, yeah. I've seen the, the footage of that. And you couldn't hear anything. Uh, I mean, even, and even going back to when Denny Lane, the diplomats, opened for the Beatles, uh, it was called the Old Hill Plaza, probably held a bit, mate, they, they probably rammed about 800 people into it. And, and we were massive fans, and we were on the side of the stage watching them. But all you could hear was screaming girls. That's crazy. I mean, you want to hear that kick drum. You want to feel it. Absolutely, yeah. And you, 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 it's understandable now, you know, why the Beatles stopped touring, because as well as being in mortal danger of being ripped to pieces every every show, yeah, they uh, they couldn't hear what they were playing. And, that, and so they just they just made records from then on. What was my worst nightmare? We used to do gigs in any in like a big sort of a place that was not made for music, so like playing in an aircraft hangar, if you like. And the, the bounce back you used to get would just throw you out completely because you were you couldn't hear the band, but you could hear the echo instead. So you're hearing your own beat coming back on the yeah, offbeat with a delay. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's awful. Well, let me ask you, now you brought it up, do you have a single worst memory of a live gig experience in those 15 years with ELO? Oh, I've never been asked that one before. Um, hey! <laughs> uh, well, it would have been in probably the, the opening night of the original lineup of ELO. We played at, at a place in Croydon, which is just outside London, and there were eight people in the band, and we had two or three roadies running around, and... Uh, and there were seven people in the audience. Oh, yeah. I know that one. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> so off the top of my head, maybe that one, yeah. It's called a fair fight. <laughs> Help me settle something that I've read conflicting accounts about. Did Mark Boland play guitar on Ma 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 Bell? Yes, he did. That's awesome. Yeah. Lovely fella. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's so tragic that he, you know, died so young. I mean, I don't know how big he was in America, but he, he was huge in, in Britain and Europe. Bing a Gong was a huge hit, and uh, Jeepster. Yeah. He, he had a handful of hits here. I know he had nothing, oh, nothing like the UK. Well, yeah. he had a similar problem though, because he, he he was a good-looking guy, and uh, he, he had the screaming girls problem as well.
A lot of bands in the late 70s when disco became so dominant had a rough time. Yet the Stones, Rod Stewart, and you guys were able to do a great rocking song that got heavy rotation also in the dance clubs like Studio 54 with the Bring Me Down. Was that a concentrated effort to go with the flow? No, I don't. Jeff was such a prolific, well, he is a prolific songwriter. It's been my privilege. In my career, I've worked with like three geniuses. I mean, Roy Wood... Jeff Lynne and Tony Iommi. So Jeff was churning out great song after great song. And it may have been influenced. The, the Discovery album had two songs that, on it that you, you'd probably call disco. Um, Shine Little Love and Last Train to London were very danceable type tracks. Only because it's got a four on the floor, you know? I mean, that's, yeah, yeah. But those are rock songs as far as I'm concerned. Oh, well, yes. I, I, I don't think any of us are ever fans of disco. <laughs> In 1980, Xanadu came out. And I remember a certain amount of backlash on rock radio because of the association with the squeaky clean Living Newton-John. Do you think that hurt ELO in America? You know, losing credibility, quote unquote. Even though the songs were great, I'm Alive All Over the World, great songs. Yeah, they were good songs. Because the movie just bombed as well, which right. probably didn't help. And Olivia Newton-John was very poppish, lovely lady, oh, yeah. a beautiful girl. Funnily enough, the only number one hit that... ELO ever had in the UK was Xanadu with Olivia Newton-John. Huh, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, and I, th- I think ELO, all the years I spent with ELO, the Out of the Blue album and the Out of the Blue tour, you know, was the pinnacle of our success, I think, even though the Discovery album was a huge hit as well. But I think Out of the Blue, it, it, you know, it had a feel about it and everything about it, the artwork was, was beautiful. Right. Um, the stage set was brilliant. So that was 77, 78. They were great years. So glad they put out the Blu-ray. Yeah. Beautiful. Fantastic stuff. Why did ELO and specifically Jeff Lynn's association with the band, at least initially in the early to mid-80s, end? Um, I think Jeff is very much a, a studio, or he was very much a studio man, and he didn't particularly enjoy touring. Uh, and I was, the, if anything, the opposite. I did what I had to do in the studio and hung around and, tried to help best I could with uh, listening to the vocals and stuff. But I just loved to tour. Uh, and the last big tour we did was, I think, the time tour. Uh, was 81, 82. Jeff, just, he didn't want to tour anymore. But we did. I put together a big charity event in Birmingham in 1986 called Heartbeat 86, where we got all the Birmingham bands together. And uh, we reformed basically just for that one-off event. And then as we'd taken all this time to rehearse, we did three more shows. We did one at Wembley Stadium with Rod Stewart, and we did two in Germany. This was, again, in the spring of 86. And that was the end of ELO. And we never toured again as ELO. Yeah. Until just quite recently, Jeff has toured with Jeff Lynn's ELO. How do you feel about um, that? I think I'm, I'm glad he's finally done it. I mean, I don't know. And he seems to be enjoying it too. So that's good. Uh, I, I haven't seen the show, but I, I, apparently it's very good. And Jeff's got all these great songs. They deserve to be heard to, you know, with a live audience. Finally, long overdue, you guys were honored with being inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yes, indeed. Great yeah. speech by Danny Harrison. But you weren't there that night. No, I was going through some bad personal stuff at the time. Sure. So I didn't make it. I, 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 Richard Tandy couldn't make it because of health problems. But it was good to see um, Jeff and Roy. 
Sabbath. You toured with them for the Born Again tour? Yeah, uh, and that was great fun. They just made this album called Born Again, and they'd used Bill Ward and played some great stuff on it. But he, he was not physically in good shape. And to play a Black Sabbath gig, you've got to be fit and well. <laughs> it's a, it's quite a tough gig. And he asked me to do it, uh, and I had a, a great time. We, we did um, uh, a European tour, uh, finished the headline at the Reading Festival, in England to about 40 or 50,000 people. And then we did sort of two American tours, really, each side of Christmas. Mm. Uh, and again, they were great guys to, I mean, Tony, as I've already said, is a great pal, still is. Uh, Geezer Butler was super to work with. Ian Gillen, great singer. and a, Phenomenal. Probably the most rock and roll guy I've ever met. Uh, <laughs> and so it, they were great times. I really enjoyed it. And how did you come to associate with Quill, who have been around for a long time? I was a fan of Quill back in the 80s. I used to go and, and, and watch them play, uh, Midlands Band, particularly impressed with the, the lead singer, Joy. And there was a show touring uh, about seven or eight years ago with a guy called Jasper Carrot, who's a very, he's one of my oldest friends, and he's also a very successful comedian here in the UK. And we put a, a show together called Stand Up and Rock. And it's my band, it's a Bev Bevan band. And we had a couple of guest singers, a guy called Jeff Turton, who used to be the band called the, the Rockin' Berries, and he had a hit in the States as Jefferson. And Joy, Joy Brain, was the, the guest female vocalist. And it was a great show. And it was during this time that she was still working with Quill, uh, and I ended up being their percussion player. We didn't do that many shows, but since then, me and Joy are now together, and, and Quill are a, a fabulous band, if I say so myself. It's, they're great musicians. Uh, we've just finished a new album. I'm so proud of it. I can't wait to get it out there. Quill, to me, is a, as tight a band as, I, as I've ever played in. But saying that, we haven't played for 18 months. So, uh, <laughs> Unique sound. Yeah. How do you describe it? it it's, it's tough to, to explain. Um, it's very percussive because there's a, there's a very good drummer called Andy Edwards who's a very well-rated prog drummer. And he plays drums on some tracks and, and I play drums on some tracks. Uh, but I play a lot of percussion as well. We've got a, a great fiddle player, Kate McWilliam, um, Abby Brent, terrific singer, keyboard player, 
uh, Lee Evans, who, who's written the songs with me and Joy, the album. He's a fabulous guitarist. Um, JJ on bass again, John Jowett. He's won so many awards, as, you know, like in the prog rock field. Yeah. Uh, putting it all together, it's 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 a, a mix of everything, really. It's we do a version of Heaven and Hell, you know, <laughs> of Sabbath. But on, uh, so it goes from being what really heavy rock into some proggy stuff, some country rock, uh, a lot of very melodic, beautiful harmony stuff. It, yeah, check it out if you can, please. As we wrap up, I'm going to ask one of those stupid, typical interview questions. <laughs> if you had to pick a track from The Move, a track from ELO, and a track from Quill that to you, in your mind, when you hear it, sums up your association with those bands, what would it be? Um, hmm. If you want a move track, because I love the lyric, I can hear the grass grow, which was a big UK hit, and I love my drumming on it, so that's probably the reason. Sure. Uh, with ELO, my favourite drumming track would be Fire on High, which oh, is yeah. the instrumental Great. opening, Great which I believe was used on one of your big sports network shows. And with Quill, I've got so many favourite tracks on this new album, but I think a song called Dead Man Walking.
I heard somewhere you're working on an autobiography. What's the status with that? Yeah, that's coincidental. We've just done a charity single over here called Let There Be Drums, which is also the title of my autobiography. Ah. But the charity single is worth a mention. We've got some great drummers on it. And what's the charity it's benefiting? It's for all the crew, all the out-of-work crew guys. Sure, for the that's last great. 18 months. At least us, the musos, we, you know, we found a way of getting into the studio, making music. The poor old crew guys, a lot of very talented guys out there, sound guys, lighting guys, whatever. And a lot of them, are, are, I'm afraid that we're going to lose them. You know, they had to go and become delivery drivers or whatever it I is. Know. You know, that's too bad. So I've done that. And I've, and it's a great, it's a great bit of fun. The Let There Be Drums charity single. That's great. And the autobiography? Autobiography. <laughs> I've been so busy that it's been hard. Ideally, I know a proper writers take the time to sit down and, and, and write a couple of hours a day, you know. Um, I, so I'm doing the best I can, <laughs> but I, I'm up, I've done about 150 pages and I'm up to 1968. Got a little way to go. <laughs> yes, indeed.
1977 multi-platinum album, Out of the Blue, that's ELO, It Turned to Stone, featuring the great Bev Bevan on drums. And I want to thank Bev for being such a cordial and friendly guy. Hell, he's a drummer. I'd expect no less. But I do invite you to check out his latest band, Quill. They're really something special. And I'll put some links in the show notes for you. And speaking of links, all of our shows are available for streaming at www.itsonlyrockandrollpodcast.com as well as on iHeart Radio, iTunes, Google Podcasts, and everywhere podcasts are pumped out onto your living room floor. Visit us on social media at Facebook and Instagram at It's Only Rock and Roll Podcast, all typed out, one word, no spaces or commas, please. And as always, thanks for tuning in, and we're going to leave you with a track from Quill's forthcoming album. This one's called Riding Rainbow. I'm sure that my-